Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. I was recently talking with Luke Fossum about security cameras. And he was sharing how, with the Sheriff's Department, a lot of the video footage that they end up receiving doesn't have a clear enough evidence for them to identify suspects. He pointed out that in order for a security system to really be helpful in identifying a suspect, you need a high-resolution camera, a certain type of light sensitivity for night vision. You need a more expensive camera, in other words. And a high percentage of the security footage they get really doesn't meet that criteria. Instead, most security cameras that people installed really only provide what he called the illusion of security. Last week in chapter 7, Jesus is preaching in the temple, and he begins to expose the illusion of security. He says... To the people, judge not by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Meaning, don't make your judgment based on assumptions, or opinions, or personal feelings. Instead, judge on the basis of truth, on the basis of love, and on the basis of what is truly right. As you're following along in John's gospel, this comes up again and again, this terminology and language that's referring to a courtroom scene. The word witness, for instance, or testimony, appears close to 50 times. The word judge or judgment, over 20 times. The word truth, over 25 times. And the word accuse and accuser six times. Like a security camera that is a low resolution that cannot provide adequate night vision, we find that the people and the leaders and the crowds are trying to judge on inaccurate information. They're shrouded in darkness and they cannot see who Jesus truly is. They cannot identify him for who he is meant to be, and they cannot know the truth of his coming. Now, this is awfully ironic, since the time in which Jesus is speaking these things is the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also known as the Festival of Lights. At the Feast of Tabernacles, they had a tradition in the days of Jesus they would raise up these great candles. The candles were 75 feet tall, great pillars, and on the top was a bowl, and the young priest would climb up the ladder to fill that bowl with oil, and they would burn those candles throughout the seven-day festival of tabernacles. It was said that those candles in the temple were so bright that they... There was not a courtyard in all Jerusalem that wasn't lit up. And in the midst of a celebration that is so filled with light, the people 
remain in darkness. And Jesus tells them, I am the light of the world. We see his light shining in this whole section. It lasts this chapter long, chapter 8, as we move along. First he sheds light on the woman's trial. Then he sheds light on his own trial. And then he sheds light on a trial for all the world. It begins with the situation with the woman on trial, where Jesus and the religious leaders are caught up in this controversy, and the woman is caught in the middle. And when I say she's caught in the middle, I mean she's literally caught, and she's literally in the middle. They've caught her in the act of adultery, guilty beyond a doubt. And then they brought her before Jesus and placed her right in the middle, where everyone can see the religious leaders on one side, Jesus on the other, and the woman in the middle. And they put her on trial. Now, it is true that it is the responsibility of the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, to take care of these sorts of situations. It dates back to the days of Moses, when Moses appointed 70 elders, leaders in Israel. And it says in Exodus 18, let them judge Israel at all times. It was a way of helping Moses because Moses was just one man. And for him to handle every little case, every situation that the people would bring to him would be overwhelming. So he appointed these 70 leaders to judge the people. And it says every small matter they can judge themselves and every large matter should be brought before Moses. And so they quote the law of Moses. So they're bringing this woman to Jesus because in the setting, Jesus becomes the Moses figure. And they're testing him. Will he agree with Moses or not? This must be a big matter to them and to Jesus to deal with adultery. Moses says in the law that such a woman ought to be stoned. What do you say? Now, it is true that there is a provision in the law of Moses for stoning those who are caught in adultery. They're not being wrong in quoting the law. But what they're being wrong in is what their intentions are. Why they're doing it. What their motivations are. They're trying to trap him. To test him. To tempt him. So that they can accuse him. So what does Jesus do? What should we do in such situations where the motivations are at stake? He does not respond. Just because we can quote scripture does not mean that we're judging rightly. The ways that the scribes were quoting scripture was just an illusion of security. It was their way of trying to cover up their own problems, their own motivations, and in order to deflect the matter into something more obvious, more clear that the crowds could see. Discerning people's motives is an important part of judging rightly. There's a very good reason why Jesus does not respond.
Instead, Jesus kneels down. Jesus writes in the sand. One of the reasons likely that Jesus doesn't respond is, first of all, why were they all there? Why were they all there able to catch this woman in the very act? And secondly, where is the man? They conveniently left the man out of this situation, even though the law of Moses provides that both people ought to die. I wonder what would happen to us if we upheld a law like this still today. What would happen to our internet history if the punishment for viewing pornography was death by stoning? Might that make a difference? Jesus is interested in going deeper. Jesus is interested in going beyond just a part of the law or a part of the story. So he ignores it altogether. He writes in the stand. Now, it doesn't tell us what he wrote in the sand. And it's speculation. It's assumptions for us to try to think. But there's a point to this that Jesus is writing in the sand. It's likely an allusion to the Old Testament. And the passage that was brought to my mind is how the Ten Commandments were said to be written with the finger of God. The finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from the mountain. And it's repeated in Exodus and then in Deuteronomy, where God instructs Moses then, once the tablets have been written, to go down from the mountain, he says, quickly, because the people have acted corruptly, they've turned aside. Behold, I've seen this people, and they are a stubborn people, the Lord says. So get down from the mountain and do something about it, Moses. And as Moses comes down the mountain, he discovers that in the midst of his time with God, the people have crafted a golden calf, and they've begun to worship an idol. And Moses, because they have shattered God's commitment to them, throws down the Ten Commandments and breaks them. But that's not the end of the story. Then Moses goes back to the Lord. And Deuteronomy says that he lays prostrate for 40 days and 40 nights, pleading with the Lord not to destroy his people. Pleading with the Lord for mercy, pleading and interceding. And the Lord forgives them. The Lord doesn't stone them to death. He doesn't cast down fire to wipe them out. He has mercy and he forgives them. Have they forgotten about this God? And now Jesus, God himself in the flesh, has come to earth and he's writing not on stone, but in the sand. Writing something new. Writing something that they haven't written, read, or they've forgotten about in God's character. He is interceding for them. He is interceding for this woman. And he says to them as they press him more and more for an answer, whoever is without sin, go ahead and pick up the stone. And then he goes back down to write on the ground again and ignores them. 
And one by one in their shame, because they're convicted in their conscience, they can't escape. Just like all of us, the stones drop. And from the oldest of them to the least of them, they walk away. Only one remains, the woman and Jesus. There is only one who stands there who does have the right to pick up the stone, who is the one who is without sin. But he does not pick up a stone. Instead, he judges with righteous judgment. With his own righteousness, he forgives her. He shines light into her heart. Not because he wants to excuse her sin, not because he approves of her sin, but because he wants to atone for her sin. He commands her then to go. And the sin is so serious to Jesus that he tells her specifically, don't do it again. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He shines his light into this woman's life. She's on trial for all of her sins, as we all are. And as he shines his light, he brings his forgiveness, and he says, now follow me. If you want to be free of that darkness, if you want to be free of that sin, if you want to be free of that slavery, that guilt, that anger, that bitterness, follow me. And he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The people who are standing by cannot see. And the Pharisees who still remain cannot see also. Now that this woman has been dealt with and there's nothing more to say to her, they turn to Jesus. They cannot see because, not because they don't have the greatest, brightest, most glorious temple candles in all the world, but because the candle's not burning within them. They accuse Jesus of bearing false witness, trying to claim something he cannot claim. You know, sometimes I think we struggle with evangelism because we imagine if we just have the best argument, if we're just wise enough, if we just are persuasive enough, we can convince anyone of this truth we know because we know it so well. If we can find a better argument or maybe we stay away from it altogether because we just know we're not good enough to to spread that message, to convince people, and it's never going to work. You have to realize there are some people who will never understand. They don't understand because they don't know the Father. Now, many people can think they know God. Every religion, in fact, claims to know God. There is no religion that does not claim to have a God. But what is unique about Jesus' teaching is that he reveals it's not just God that he is concerned with but God as his Father. It is knowing the Father of Jesus that reveals to us who God really is. Not just a generic God that you can go to, plead with, or throw stones in the name of, 
Rather, he is uniquely the father of Jesus. And Jesus is uniquely the son of God. And only Jesus then can show us who God is. Only Jesus can say, I am the light of the world. I am the great menorah lifted up for all the world to see. But their vision only gives them the illusion of security. They say, who are you? Jesus is revealing the ultimate trial and judgment of his father. He's saying that the only one who can confirm for you who I am is my father, the one who sent me. And if you knew him, you would know me. If you had been honest, if you had repented, if you had remembered his mercies to you during 40 years in the wilderness and his forgiveness to those who committed idolatry against him, you would know my father. And you would know me as the one who will not condemn this woman, but who will set her free. In fact, he says to them, they can only be set free if they abide in his word. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So now Jesus has turned from the woman on trial to his own trial to the world on trial. The truth alone will set you free. There are some in John's gospel who have begun to believe. There are some who've heard his word and it says they believe him. They believe he he is offering something positive, something that they can believe in, but it seems they're also confused. And Jesus has to push the envelope. Discipleship is not just feeling good in the moment about what Jesus is saying. It's not just liking a sermon that pastor preached It's not just singing a great song that's uplifting. It's about what happens when you go out the door and on Tuesday in the afternoon you have to deal with a grumpy clerk at the grocery store. Or go home to a grumpy spouse who's had a tough day. Or deal with a child who won't listen. The trial is on the world now. Not just to believe him, but to believe in him. In chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that those who believe come to the light so that they can be seen in the light and you can see their works are godly. But those who are wicked stay away from the light. They hide from the light because they don't want their works to be exposed. And for all of us then, Don't be afraid of the light. The light is there to help you. If you are keeping your struggles and your sins hidden, if you are keeping your worries and your anger and angst hidden, if you're keeping your life in darkness and not sharing it with other Christians who can shed light on you, it's only going to hurt. The true freedom, Jesus says, the truth, is to abide in his word and step into the light and stand there because Jesus can handle it. He can handle it, whatever it is. He's tough. He's tougher than we could ever imagine. 
If God can handle forgiving a people that within days of redeeming them from Egypt had turned back to idols, he can surely forgive you. He has to set them free from the illusion of security, the false security that they say, Abraham is our father. Jesus has to remind them that that's only an illusion. Do not think to say to yourself, Abraham is our father, because God can raise up children from these pews and the stones outside. Do not think to say, I, I have a church membership, but I am from Holy Trinity, or I am part of the CLC, or I am an Orthodox church, or I am a Bible-based Christian, or I have the right doctrine. As this situation escalates, Jesus has to confront this false illusion of security so that we can get a high-definition view of what Jesus has come to do. And he has to set them free from the lies. He turns them all back to the Garden of Eden and says, you are of your father. Not Abraham, but the accuser. The same accuser that came after Adam and Eve, the same accuser that was coming after that woman caught in adultery. The accuser from the beginning, the father of lies is the devil. The devil brought forth lies from the beginning, from when he took Eve and led her into a lie, to Cain, who he led into murder. Cain, who judged himself to be the authority on religion and worship, not God. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he continues to be a murderer, and it's going to eventually lead to the accusations against Jesus and the lies against Jesus and the murder of Jesus. And yet all of this is part of God's plan. The very stones that they had laid down because they were unable to pick up and throw against that woman, they're now picking up to throw against Jesus, the only one who truly has no sin. But this is his destiny. His destiny is to die for those who have sinned against him. His destiny is to face the devil's accusations against you, which are actually fair and correct. The woman truly sinned. But to take them on himself, and all who stand in him, and all who abide in his word, and who listen to his truth, and who take that truth home into your heart and your homes, are free. Free from the guilt, free from the accusations, free from the worry about what's going to come next. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus is greater than any religious leader or tradition or outward effort we could make to justify ourselves. And you are set free. Go and sin no more. Amen.